congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, our sermon text this morning comes from John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 28, and this is God's holy word. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why you are baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. As far the reading of God's holy word, may the Lord add his blessing and power to the preaching thereof. Congregation, it has been said that the best way to get into cold water is to jump. And last week we did just that in a way, as right in the beginning of John's Gospel, the nature of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ was settled once and for all and without doubt. As we saw his divine majesty, his nature as the eternal Son of God, as the incarnate Word, as the Logos, and his importance at the center or as the center of all of Scripture. And now that the question concerning the person of Christ is settled, John moves on in his gospel to the narrative. In verse 19, he tells us that the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Well, let us first, before we do anything else, take a closer look as to who these men, who these inquirers or inquisitors were, who sent them. One observation right away that we can take away from this already It is remarkable that John the Baptist's preaching apparently attracted enough attention for the Jews in Jerusalem, even for the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, to hear about it and to immediately send a committee of inquirers out to Bethany to investigate the matter. It says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 5, that Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, 
There were masses and masses of people who went out to hear John the Baptist. And here we see one important fact as we see these leaders coming or the delegation of the leaders coming and inquiring. Namely, that wherever in the world the Word of God is being faithfully and boldly proclaimed, and wherever there is a visible and growing impact of this preaching, the rulers and powers that be are very swift and very quick to hear about it and to act against it swiftly. They will stop it at any price. Wherever the kingdom of God is gaining ground, the evil one is usually right around the corner, ready to strike, ready to create confusion and havoc. I've seen it myself many, many times. Wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ gains ground, wherever the people of God are awakening, there is confusion, there is attack, there is havoc. Accordingly, we can say that the best way to smoke out the enemies of the truth inside and outside of the church is to faithfully preach the truth without compromise. Because then they'll come. They come out of their holes. They come out of their darkness to attack. But now who were these men who came? Those men who were sent to inquire about John the Baptist? It says that they were priests and Levites sent by the Jews in Jerusalem. Later we read that it was the Pharisees who sent them. Now these priests and Levites constituted a committee that went out of the Jewish Sanhedrin. It was truly a committee of the uh, Jewish Sanhedrin, a body of the 70 most powerful religious leaders in all of Israel. The Sanhedrin was, so to speak, the religious high court that took care of all matters of religion in all of Israel. Now, the expression, the Jews, that we read here, appears 71 times alone in the Gospel of John. And most of the time when it talks about the Jews, it denotes Jews who were hostile to Jesus Christ, to the Gospel, and to his people. And that was exactly also the attitude of this committee and of those religious leaders who sent the committee against Jesus Christ and against everyone associated with him. And it remained like this until this day. So a group of priests and Levites were sent by the Jewish religious elite to deal with the problem, to deal with John the Baptist. Now let's take a look at their plan. What was their plan? What were they hoping to achieve? Sometimes it helps to ask somebody who is opposing you or who has a different opinion, who, who is uh, seemingly bringing a new idea in, onto the table. Sometimes it's good to ask, what is your end game? What is your plan? What are you hoping to achieve? Now what was their plan? As I said, John's preaching had drawn thousands. Many, many people came to hear him. Israel had been waiting for a very long time for the promised Messiah, and here is John announcing the coming of this very Messiah. 
And of course, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had heard about it, and they had sent a committee to inquire and, of course, to stop it. And there were two major reasons for this, two major reasons for their evil plan to stop it regardless, not even to properly listen. They went already with the presupposition. They went already with the goal to stop it. And there were two reasons for the Jewish leaders to do this. First of all, blindness. Blindness for the truth. Blindness for Jesus Christ. Blindness for spiritual things. And secondly, resulting from this blindness, jealousy. One commentator describes the Pharisees of that day with these words. They were the party which laid utmost stress on the strictest outward, outward observance of the law, around which they had also built up a forbidding hedge of tradition and human commandments. They were utterly self-righteous and cultivated a formalism that was ostentatious to a degree, especially in observing ceremonies, fastings, alms, giving, long prayers, tithes, etc. End of quote. So you could call these guys the externalists who would talk a big game about the law. They would talk a big, ga- big game about the kingdom of God, about reaching the proselytes for the kingdom, but they wouldn't understand everything because it was all outwardly. It was all external. It was all about behavior. It was all about keeping up exp- appearances. And if you look at it or them from this perspective, the last thing that these prideful men wanted was somebody to steal their show. That's what it was. He was somebody to steal their show. They didn't want the Messiah to come. They didn't want the prophecy to be fulfilled because the moment the prophecy was fulfilled, they knew they had to decrease. Proud people don't want to decrease. Proud people don't want to go into the second row. Proud people want to be the center of attention. They want to be applauded. They always want to be greeted at the public places. They want to be in the places of honor. They don't want to decrease. Let me read a few verses from Matthew 23 for us to gain an understanding of how the Lord Jesus Christ himself judged the mindset of the Pharisees when he says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And then later in verse 13 of Matthew 23, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. 
Now, this should give us an idea, beloved, and some insight into the mindset of the Jewish religious leaders. They were religious leaders. If you transform it or if you translate it in today, those were the authors, those were the bloggers, those were the conference speakers, those were the university and seminary professors. That was the intelligentsia of the church of that day. And Christ tells them that they are locking the kingdom of God before others and they themselves don't go in. What a scandal! What a scandal that the religious elite is not only unconverted, but that these men also, according to the Lord Jesus' word, lock the kingdom of those who would go in. These were the motives of these men keeping people centered unto them, giving them honor and glory being seen and greeted in the marketplaces, but not to bow their knees before the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. But apart from their bad motives, we have to say there were also, there would have been, I should say, some legitimate reasons to inquire about John the Baptist's preaching. You have to understand that there had been many throughout the years and decades and even centuries who had claimed to be the Messiah. And that issue, of course, had the capacity to fire up tempers and to cause unrest in Israel, and it had done so before. Especially since John the Baptist stems from a prominent priestly family. Also, there's another legitimate reason Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 21 requires a proper examination of any prophet who might appear. As it says, and if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him, it says. So I'm pretty sure that was the official explanation of this committee as to why they inquired about John the Baptist. And as I said, it would have been a legitimate thing to inquire. Of course, we know that at least most of them did not have those legitimate reasons to inquire, but they wanted to stop him. So this delegation of religious bullies and inquisitors approaches the Baptist, and they ask him, Who are you? A pretty obvious question, Who are you? And in verse 20, we read John's answer, as it says that he confessed and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. If you think about it, this is quite an interesting wording. First positive, then negative, and then positive again. He confessed, and then he did not deny, but confessed, rather than simply saying he replied. And as you know, nothing in Scripture is written in vain, because this three-part preamble 
this introduction of forward to what John is going to say refers to the whole of John's statement, of John's confession that follows, and not just to this first statement, I'm not the Christ. And this whole statement of John is not just a reply, but this is a full-blown confession of faith. It is a doxology that John the Baptist sings into the faces of his opponents. And it begins with the words, I am not the Christ. Now let us think about this for a moment. You're preaching in Israel, you're John the Baptist, you're preaching in Israel in the first century, and you're so successful that thousands and thousands come to listen to you. Everyone wants to see you. And then even the religious elite gets alert and they send a committee and they ask you, who are you? And you're John the Baptist, of course. Wouldn't there be a temptation, at least for a minute, for some of us to say something to the extent of, well, my father was Zacharias, the famous priest who serves in the temple. He's in the course of Abijah, he serves in the temple in Jerusalem. My mother is a direct descendant of Aaron. I myself am an ordained prophet, appointed and called by God himself. There's also a lot of reference in the Old Testament about me, if you will. And by the way, Jesus, who is God, is my cousin. That would be us in America in the 21st century, self-promotion. Self-promotion. And then we would add, but I'm nothing, to appear humble. Oh, I know how it works. Been there myself. But nothing like this from John the Baptist. I am not the Christ. That's what he says. That's all they needed to know. No word about his pedigree. No word about his abilities. No word about his references, but a simple answer to the real question they actually had in mind. Namely, do you claim to be the Christ? Because they wanted it to be easy. They just wanted to hear that he claims to be Christ, stone him and be done with the problem. But he says right away, no, I'm not the Christ. And I'm sure that was new for them. After all these cooks who ran out and claimed to be Christ... But they're not done yet. They still want something to catch him because after all, he drew many people and he talked about the coming of the Messiah. And they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he answers in the same way, I'm not. Well, with this question, they refer back to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, where it talks about the coming of the Messiah with these words, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, the Jews, of course, know that Elijah had left the earth in a whirlwind without passing through death and that he was to return before the coming of the promised Messiah. And therefore, they asked John if he claimed to be this Elijah. But he answers, of course, that he is not. Now, John's denial might confuse some, especially in light of what Jesus says of him in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 11, from verse 13, where Jesus says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, 
John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And here the liberals would uh, fire party, of course, and say, look, there is a straight contradiction in the Scriptures. Well, there is not. There is never a contradiction in Scripture. If we have a seeming contradiction, it's our brains and not the written Word of God that is contradictory. We never must shy away even from these passages because we know there is no contradiction. We know that this book is the truth. But then you say Jesus here clearly refers to John the Baptist as being Elijah. And Jesus refers to the same Malachi passage as he points to John the Baptist for its fulfillment. So how can we resolve this? Of course we can. You have to understand that all this statement uh, uh, does, it doesn't necessarily mean that John is Elijah, the person himself, but that he came in the spirit of Elijah, the grammar, perfectly allows for that. And there is indeed a very strong resemblance between the two, as Dr. Hendrickson Boyd points out when he writes, like Elijah of old, John too was a preacher of repentance. The two resembled each other also in the sudden character of their appearance, the incisiveness of their message, and the simplicity of their life. True, John was not literally Elijah, but inwardly he was indeed for. He went forth in the spirit and power of Elijah, as Luke 1.17 tells so, and was therefore called Elijah by no less than Jesus himself, end of quote. So this is what it means. There is one who will come in the spirit of Elijah, and God created a man and prepared the man, John the Baptist, to come who resembles Elijah, who, who continues where Elijah has left off. But this committee is not done yet. There's yet another question these men ask. Are you the prophet? And again he answers, no, he is not the prophet, and here his interrogators are referring to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, where Moses says these words, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. To him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And it goes on. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So the Jews here are referring to this text when they ask if John the Baptist was this prophet. Now, but here's their problem. From the earliest time of Christianity... It was clear, and it is clear to us, as we just read from Deuteronomy, that this passage refers to Jesus Christ. While the Jews distinguished between the prophet to come and the expected Messiah. 
Uh, By the way, in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter also verifies that Christ was this prophet. You can read this later if you want to. But then they ask, who are you? It must have been something like that. Who are you? We have asked you. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And at that point, John the Baptist quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, which talks about him, or in other words, he finally points them to the proper prophecy about who he really was. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. But they are utterly confused, or should I say blind? And they ask him, Why then he was baptizing when he wasn't the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? You have to understand, and many don't know this, but baptism was a common practice in Israel, even in Old Testament Israel. It had been used for converts from other religions to Judaism for a long time. All converts were baptized before circumcision of the male converts. And here the Jews question Uh, uh, is about John's authority. With whose authority do you do that? They question his authority altogether, as they later did so many times with the Lord Jesus Christ. At that point, John the Baptist cannot keep his peace anymore. These priests and Levites keep focusing on him, but they have no idea whom he is really all about, as they are utterly blind. He knows that now he must speak. He cannot be quiet anymore. And he begins with answering their question about baptism. I baptize with water, he says. But then he immediately leaves the issue of baptism and turns to the one of whom baptism is all about, to him who is coming after him, the one who was before him. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now the tone is set for the gospel of John to once again show us the Son of God in all his divine glory, to see the Son of God. But the priests and the Levites and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they just can't see him. They are utterly Blind. Now, having heard all this, what does this mean for us at Walker this morning? What does it all mean for us today? Because we need application. We have heard it. It was very interesting, I'm sure, if it was half as interesting for you as it was for me to research this. It was a wonderful time. But we need to know how we shall live in light of this. We need application. Here it is. Here you have John the Baptist, a spiritual giant. A spiritual giant of whom the Lord Jesus Christ himself said that among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. A giant of giants. He was the greatest of the prophets. The voice of one crying in the wilderness 
the herald for Jesus Christ, the great announced prophesied herald for Jesus Christ. Thousands followed him to listen to his preaching. And the Jewish elite comes out to see him all the way from Jerusalem just to inquire about him, not just some low-level civil servants. But the elite came out, a committee of the elite came out to interrogate him. And they go even so far as to ask him, do you claim to be the Messiah? Or at least Elijah or the great prophet? I mean, that's a lot of honor. That's a lot of kudos. That's a lot of stuff that would keep any other man's head explode. But all that John the Baptist does is refer to Jesus Christ. That's all he does. There is not one achievement, not one piece of his own biography that he reveals to them. It is unimportant to him. It is unimportant to them and it is unimportant to us. There is nothing about his pedigree. There is nothing about his achievements. There is nothing about his importance. There is nothing that could feed his ego. All he talks about is Jesus Christ. Everything he tells them about himself, he puts in relation with Jesus Christ. This is the humble John the Baptist, who in chapter 3, verse 30, will say this about Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. Beloved, all that he was asked was, who are you? Everyone was interested in him, in John the Baptist, but his answer was a six-verse-long doxology on Jesus Christ. This man, beloved, had found his identity. He found his identity in Jesus Christ. He was all about Jesus Christ. He didn't seek to find his identity in professional success. He didn't find his identity in looks, not in status, not in wealth, not in health, not in anything other than Jesus Christ. That was all that was important for him. This man found his identity in the one who is the center of everything, Jesus Christ. Brother, sister, who are you? If one asks you, who are you? Oh, I'm a nurse. Oh, no, I'm a doctor. No, I'm this, I'm that. I'm a bus driver. Is that who you are? Oh, that's your calling. I understand and It's not unimportant. But who are you? For whom are you doing all this? How do you see yourself? How would you describe yourself? How do you live your life? What do you speak about most? What do you think about most? What captures your thoughts most? What do you dream about? Who are you trying to be? Uh, I'm not sure if you have realized we are raising a generation who lives in a massive, profound identity crisis who is constantly looking out who they are or who they want to be or who their role model can be. And they might find it in an athletic team. They might find it in some sin. They might find it in some profession. They may find it in some actor. I don't know, but they don't find it in Jesus Christ because we don't show them. Is your life a doxology unto Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ. 
Or is it the old, broken, boring record, me, 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 me? Brothers and sisters, please listen to me. And this is direct. We have to get over ourselves. We just have to. We have to get over ourselves and turn to him who saved us by shedding his precious blood for us and whose sandal strap none of us is worthy to lose. The one who bought us with his precious blood and who loves us, he must increase. But we must decrease. May you find your answer to the question, who are you in him and him alone? Make this the focus, if you will, for the coming week before you will take communion next Lord's Day. Let him increase and you decrease. Prepare your hearts to put Christ in the proper place in your soul because he must increase, but we must decrease. May God help us. Let us pray. Almighty God, our most merciful and kind Heavenly Father, what we just heard, we have so often violated every last one of us. So often it's about me, me, me. I want to be somebody. I want to be loved. I want to be honored. I want to have this or that or the other. So often, O oh Lord, it is so pre prevalent in our lives that we, we, could, we could grow desperate over it. But thank God for Jesus Christ. Maybe bring this sin also to him. Maybe repent and receive uh, the help of you, Holy Spirit, to guide us away that we can decrease while you increase, O triune God. Help us and forgive us. We thank you, O Lord, for the obedience of Jesus Christ and for his atonement because there is no hope without it. We are a wretched people. Help us to grow. Help us to gain perspective, to have our eyes fixed on Jesus at all times. Who is the